Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer. From turning water into wine to feeding 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, God can turn something mundane into something miraculous. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah illustrates this truth as it unfolds in the life and ministry of Elisha. If you need some motivation for putting your faith into action, keep listening as David introduces today's message, The Anatomy of a Miracle. Friends, you don't want to miss today's message because it's a tremendous story of the power and the love and compassion of God that he channels through his servants, his prophets, his people, his preachers. And um, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I hope you'll get there with your Bible. If you have the study guide that goes with this series, that will even be more helpful. You can follow along with the outline and fill in the blanks. And uh, by the way, you can get this study guide. It's 140 pages, perf-bound, beautifully designed. It's the study of Elisha, the double-blessed prophet. I hope you'll order your copy and uh, have it available for you to study. And by the way, you can use this for small group uh, studies as well. I hope you will consider that. Get enough copies of the study guide for everybody in your group. You get the CD package, and you get your study guide, and you listen and study, and you can facilitate your discussion every week. I hope you'll do that. By the way, don't forget, we have some major events coming up in the fall. Uh, We're going to be in Tampa, Florida on October the 5th, uh, Jacksonville, Florida on October the 7th. We're going to be in Houston, Texas on October the 26th and in Fort Worth, Texas on October the 28th. You can come to these events. I hope you will. If you're within driving distance, please come and join us. It's a ticketed event, but the tickets are free. You get the tickets by going to davidjeremiah.org slash tour. There you can order all the tickets you need. They'll be delivered electronically right to you. You'll have them in time for the event, and we'll rejoice together as we return to our rallies. We've missed them. I know you have, too. Let's get started with uh, our hands up high, rejoicing in all that God is doing. Well, this is part one of The Anatomy of a Miracle. We open our Bibles to the second book of Kings and the fourth chapter. We're going to study the first seven verses of the fourth chapter, and I want to talk with you about the anatomy of a miracle. This is one of those stories that just goes right through the text, verses 1 through 7. We're going to focus on the first of four stories that are found in this fourth chapter. And this is a story in the life of Elijah, 
but the focus is really on the circumstances and the faith of a desperate widow. It's a very personal story because it shows us how God meets the need of an individual right where they are. And the story's in three scenes. So if you're into following the drama of it all, scene one, which is verses one through four, this takes place at Elisha's home. The widow requests the prophet's help and he gives her instructions. Scene two, which is verses five and six, takes us to the widow's home. There the widow and her two sons miraculously fill a multitude of jars with oil. Scene three, verse 7, takes us back to Elisha's house again, where Elisha tells the widow how she can experience the blessing of the miracle that has happened in her life. It's really interesting to notice as you study this story that in all three scenes, the widow is the one who takes the initiative. In the first scene, she cries out to Elisha for help. In the second scene, she carries out his command. And in the last scene, she comes back to tell Elisha what happened. So let's start with verse 1 and notice how Elisha, the man of God, begins to lead this desperate widow from a place of deep trouble to a place of deliverance and well-being. The story starts with what we might call the cry, verses 1 and 2. Here is the story of a widow who is crying out to Elisha for help. This woman was desperate for three reasons. First of all, she was experiencing death. Notice what it says in verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now, normally in the Bible, cries for help are addressed to God. But here, the woman pleads with Elisha because her husband has died. Apparently, this man was a disciple of Elisha, somebody who followed him. He was a godly man who faithfully served his mentor, and the Scripture says that he feared the Lord. I wonder if Jesus had this story in mind when he told the following parable about how we're to pray when we're in trouble. Luke 18, 1 through 5, here's the story. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wears me out. Basically is what he's saying. This woman was so desperate. She was so filled with desperation. She went to see the person she thought could help her. And while he didn't respond, she never quit asking. In the Bible, we call this importunity. She never quit. She just kept on praying. I think that's what was going on with this widow that Elisha met. She was in a whole lot of trouble. First of all, she was facing the aftermath of the death of her husband. But that's only part of the story. She also had a very serious problem with debt, D-E-B-T, debt. It says in verse 1, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. The widow was distraught not only because her husband had recently passed away, she was also in deep financial problems. She was in debt, and her creditors were on the way to her house 
to take away her two sons so that they could work for them and they would no longer be with her. In that day, the creditor was completely entitled to enslave the borrower or his sons until a debt was repaid. I'm glad that isn't the way it is today. A lot of people would not be at home. It's worth noting that holiness is no more man's guard against debt than it is against death. Her husband was a good man. He was the son of a prophet. He was the man who honored his mentor, and yet all of these things are happening to him and his family. People have a hard time understanding that. Many people that I've talked to over the years think that when you become a Christian, it's sort of like a pass that carries you through life without any trouble. When I got cancer, people came up to me and said, Dr. Jeremiah, you're a pastor. How'd you get cancer? Like if you're a pastor, you get a pass on cancer. I've always thought if that were true, there'd be a lot more pastors than there are now. You don't get a pass just because you're a Christian. You get sick. You know why? Because it's a human condition. It isn't because you're evil often. It's not because you've done anything wrong. Sickness touches people indiscriminately. There is no reason or rhyme to it, and you all know that. This woman was suffering because her husband had died, and then these creditors that they owed money to came and tried to take her two sons away so that they recover what they felt was owed to them. And verse 2 tells us she was in destitution. The first half of this story is all about emptiness. The woman's husband has died. She has no money. Her children are about to be taken away from her. And now in verse 2, we learn that she is on the verge of starvation. All she has left in her house is one single jar of oil. Verse 2, so Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Now here Elisha's acting like God. He takes the time to listen to this woman so he can help her. And the Bible often describes God as a God who hears, who cares and provides for widows and orphans. The psalmist describes God like this. God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. He is the Lord who watches over strangers and relieves the fatherless and the widow. And what is true of God, men and women, should be true of us if we're followers of God. We should be like God when it comes to the people we know who are in need. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, learn to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Jeremiah says it this way, do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt. More than anything else, these words are behind what we have done with our food program trying to find people who are in trouble, trying to help them, trying to say, here in the name of God is a token of our love for you and our desire to help you during your difficult days. So here we have at the beginning of the story, the cry. This woman has faced the death of her husband, the loss of her two sons, and the absolute absence of any food in her house except for one jar of oil. Now, Elisha, speaks into the situation with the command, verses 3 and 4. And I have to tell you that what Elisha is about to tell this woman is what you might call counterintuitive. It's strange. 
it's a little bit off the charts. Nobody would ever think of anything like this. So listen to what Elisha told her. And he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, don't gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and pour it into those vessels and set aside the full ones. And I'm sure the widow is listening to this and she's saying, say what? What did you say? Elisha gives this widow some curious instructions. She is to start by canvassing the neighborhood and collecting as many pots and pans as she can find. She's not just together a few. Elisha's very clear about this. She's to borrow vessels from everywhere, from all of her neighbors. She's to go up and down the street, knock on the door and say, give me all your pots and pans and get them back to her house. At first, the widow might have been thinking something like this, Elisha, do you really think a bunch of empty jars can save me from my emptiness? But Elisha didn't stop there. He continues by telling the woman to take the empty containers back to her home, to shut the door behind her, and with the help of her two sons, to begin pouring oil into the empty jars. And somehow the one jar of oil will make the empty jars all full. This is a test of this widow's faith in at least three counts. First of all, she has to believe that her neighbors will supply her with the empty jars. Secondly, she has to believe that the one measly jar of oil will somehow fill all the other jars that she collects. But maybe this is the most difficult one of all. She has to believe that she can accomplish this task without the help or the aid of Elisha because he's not going to be in the room when they shut the door. Ultimately, she has to trust God and not trust the prophet. And so now we come to the commitment in verses 5 and 6. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. And the oil ceased. Now, if you're listening carefully, you have to understand this does qualify as a miracle. Unless you've had an experience like this in recent days, you have to realize this is an unusual, out of the ordinary, beyond the way of explaining it. This is a miracle where God has intervened and interrupted the normal routines of the physical world to accomplish something for this woman. And the widow commits immediately to do what Elisha tells her to do and begins to pour out the contents of her one jar of oil into the borrowed vessels. And she fills each jar with oil. Her two sons bring her a new one. And the oil miraculously continues to flow until all of the borrowed containers are full. Listen to me. The oil is given according to the measure of the widow's faith in collecting the vessels. When the vessels are full, the oil ceases. Had she borrowed more, more would have been provided. Had she gathered less, less would have been provided. The principle is this. The amount of one's work with the miracle determines the amount of blessing and provision actually received. God's powerful provision invites our hard work and never excuses laziness. 
One of the great lessons we learn from this widow's commitment to God's promise through Elisha is that faith is a verb. Listen carefully. There's a lot of misunderstanding about faith. Some people think faith is a warm feeling around the middle of your breast. Some people think faith is just an attitude, just an emotion, just an intellectual process. But I want to tell you that faith is not a noun. Faith is a verb. Faith is not something you feel. Faith is something you do. If you believe, you do what you're told to do. And throughout the Bible, that is so clear, so consistently clear. Most of you know that the book of Hebrews and the 11th chapter is what the Bible calls the chapter of faith. Here in Hebrews 11 are the stories of a whole bunch of people who had faith. And the Bible tells us they had faith, and then it tells us what happened because of their faith. And I remember going through Hebrews chapter 11 and writing down all of the verbs that are associated with having faith. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but there's a bunch of them. Hebrews 11 tells us that when you have faith, here's the kind of thing that happens. Faith commits, it acts, it is astounding, it obtains, it understands, it offers, it pleases, it prepares, it obeys, it goes out, it waits, it receives, it embraces, it confesses, it declares, it seeks, it desires, it offers, and on and on it goes. That's about half of them. Maybe you've heard about the three people who were trapped in a cave in which the water was rising. One of these men was a philosopher, another was a scientist, and the third was a peasant man. None of them could swim. But fortunately, emergency responders discovered their plight, and rescuers lowered a rope to save them. The philosopher said, well, this looks like a rope, but maybe it's an illusion. And he didn't attach himself to it, and he drowned. The scientist felt he should study the rope, and his calculations raised questions as to its strength. He delivered a lecture about the analysis of the rope's physical and chemical properties, but he didn't attach himself to it, and he drowned. The simple man said, well, I don't know if this is a rope or a python, but I'm going to take hold of it because it's my only chance. And he grabbed hold of it, and he was saved. Here's what you need to remember. Real faith grabs hold of the truth and hangs on. Real faith responds in action. How do you know if you have faith? Well, what did you do when you received it? The Bible says faith without works is dead. There's a big argument about that between James and Paul, but I understand what he's saying. There's a real sense in which the word obedience is a synonym for the word faith. Obedience is believing and doing what God tells you to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Real faith grabs hold of the truth. Don't tell me that your faith is some little warm feeling in your heart. That's not faith. Faith exhibits itself in the way your life is changed and how you live. If you have faith, you will be different. The Bible says when you become a Christian, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You know, a lot of people are walking around talking about their faith, but their faith isn't expressing itself in any way, and you have to wonder, do they really understand what faith is? Sometimes we misunderstand faith to our own peril. So we have the cry and the command and the conclusion. Verse 7, at the beginning of our story, the woman cried out to Elisha. Now she returns back to Elisha's house 
and she's filled with gratitude and excitement. And she tells him what has happened. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on what's left over. Out of reverence and respect, she didn't want to do anything until she talked to Elisha. She knew he was the one who had made this happen through the power of God. So she came back and she told him all that God had done. And Elisha gave her these instructions. He said, take the money from this oil, which you could easily have sold because it was a very expensive commodity in that day. It would have brought much money on the market. And she was to take the first part of this and pay off all of her debts. That gets her creditors off her back. And then she's to take the rest of it and store it up and use it to take care of her and her sons going forward. Now, that's the story. It's an interesting story. It's a unique and fun story. It's a story you don't read every day, and it's not more than once in the Bible. But the actual question we need to ask is this. What does this teach us about the anatomy of a miracle, and how does it affect us in our lives today? That's always the question we should ask when we study the Bible. So the first thing I want you to notice is the principle of personal desperation. When the widow needed help, she laid out her situation before the Lord. She trusted that God could meet her need. The Bible says she cried out. I love that phrase, cry out. Say that with me, cry out. Did you know that little two-word phrase appears in the Bible 60 different times? Apparently, God wants us to know that it's okay to cry out to him. I know that some of you, during this time, with all of the terrible things that are happening and the challenges you're facing, some of you have learned what it means to cry out to God during these days. You don't just pray, you cry out to God. I've told you before that when I was coming back from cancer almost 20 years ago now, I was almost better, and I agreed to go to New York City to the Brooklyn Tabernacle and preach for my friend Jim Cimbala. I don't remember much about preaching there. I don't even remember much about the service, but I remember one thing. One after another, the people of that church came up to me, and they all said the same thing. It was without any difference at all. They all said this, oh, Dr. Jeremiah, we cried out to God for you. I'd never heard anybody say that before. I guess I've just never been in one of their Tuesday prayer meetings. But that church didn't just pray for me. They cried out to God for me. Have you ever cried out to God for something? You know how you know? When, the more desperate you get, the more you're apt to cry out to God. When everything's okay, but not just the way you want it, you pray. But when things get desperate, you cry out to God. And the Bible tells us that we should do that that part of our responsibility in walking with God is to fill the freedom to cry out to him when we're in a need. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 56, 9 says, When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. Psalm 57, 2 says, I will cry out to the God most high, to God who performs all things for me. Psalm 107, verse 28, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. When we ask God for help, we are going to the one who can meet us where we are and can give us what we need. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, my God shall supply all your need 
according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Hmm. Wow, what a promise that is. More about this tomorrow as we go to part two of the anatomy of a miracle. You know, I don't know about you, but every year when we get through the Christmas season, we've done all of the things we do at church and all of our family things, and uh, Christmas is in the rearview mirror. We've gotten accustomed to doing something special to kind of relax and uh, reinvent life and think about the year that is to come. We weren't able to do it last year. It was really a disappointment to us all. But this year, we return to our Caribbean Cruise Conference December 30th through January the 8th. We'll be going to some beautiful places. Most of all, we'll be cruising on the beautiful Caribbean Sea. And uh, we're going to be on Holland America's new Amsterdam ship. We're going to have some wonderful places to go. We'll have some wonderful events, great music, Michael Sanchez, Uriel Vega. I'll be preaching and teaching from the Word of God, and we'll end the old year and begin the new year together. What a tremendous opportunity this is. We haven't talked very much about it, but I want to make sure you have it on your list of things you'd like to do, and hopefully you'll be able to join us. Once again, it's December 30th through January the 8th, and we're visiting the Caribbean for a Turning Point Conference cruise. Well, today we continued our study of Elisha, and tomorrow we're going to talk about the anatomy of a miracle and make all the applications to our own lives. Hope you'll join us then. I'm David Jeremiah. I love doing this. I hope you're benefiting from the teaching of the Word of God. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's current series, Elisha, the Double-Blessed Prophet, visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of our inspiring 14-month calendar for 2022, Moving Toward Hope filled with scriptures and images to encourage your walk. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to instantly access our content. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.org radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Elisha, the Double Blessed Prophet, here on Turning Point. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. There's an interesting verse about flattery in the book of Proverbs. It says that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. But it's not clear whose feet are about to get caught in the trap. Is the person doing the flattering or the person receiving the flattery about to be trapped? 
Well, in a strict sense, I think the verse says that the person being flattered is the one in danger because he is being seduced without knowing it. But the person who speaks flattering words is also in danger. When his flattery is discovered, he will have lost a friend. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's honest ways of speaking on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.